The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Watersco was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Lierre Keith is an American writer, radical feminist, food activist, and environmentalist. Lierre is the author of the novels Condition of War and Skylar Gabriel. Her non-fiction works include the highly acclaimed The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice and Sustainability. Lierre lives in Northern California and you can find out more about Lierre at lierrekeith.com. L-I-E-R-R-E-K-E-I-T-H dot com. Lier, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. And I just have to say that your book, The Vegetarian Myth, is the one book that I recommend to everybody that eats food because <laughs> it is so profound and it has such a unique message that I think is, is very often overlooked in today's age. And I just want to thank you for writing that book. And uh, I, I am sure it has changed so many people's lives. So uh, congratulations. Thank you, and thanks for having me on your show. So um, let's talk about who Lierre Keith is. I mean, you are an author, you're a, 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 an activist, you're a feminist, you care for the planet. How did Lierre come to write The Vegetarian Myth? Could you take us through the history of this, please? So when I was 16 years old, I became a vegan. And I became a vegan the way that most, just that I met somebody else who was a vegan. And within two weeks, she had me completely convinced. So here I was, this very idealistic, very impassioned teenager who cared very deeply about the state of the world and uh, met somebody who, you know, her whole family, they were all vegans. And so she was very well versed in all the facts and figures and the arguments. And I found it very compelling. And growing up as I did in a very kind of urban, suburban area, I really had no counter information. Um, and, you know, you see those the photographs of the factory farming and you read about the conditions of those animals. And I, I think most of us are pretty appalled, you know, when, when you find out that these sentient beings are living these hellacious lives. I mean, that is just incontrovertible. So, uh, you know, they offer you this sort of complete move animal products 
from your diet, you will save the planet, you will save animals, you will save the environment, you will make more human justice, and you will also save your health. And who could say no to all of that? I mean, it was, like I said, a complete package. So I signed up um, and I just dove right in and was utterly convinced this was something that was righteous and true and good and, you know, would save us all. So I did it for 20 years, just about. Um, I completely destroyed my health. I have permanent injury from this. And um, I had to struggle mightily to understand why it failed and, you know, sort of point by point, what was the information that was missing from this kind of vegan mindset? Because ultimately it didn't work on any level. So, so it was it was a long struggle that 20 years because every time I bumped into information that was counter to the vegan worldview, uh, it was very difficult to engage. Um, it can be a very fundamentalist mindset. Um, that's true for many, many ideologies. I don't even want to just point out veganism. It's just one among many, you know, that we may fall into, especially as young people. Um, you know, we take it up with all the fervor of youth, which is an incredible gift of youth. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing we have teenagers and young people in the world because they are the ones who take drive movements forward in, in very good ways. But there's a very black and white thinking that comes also with that age. And, you know, you need adults to temper it. And I didn't have anybody else. So that, you know, it was very, very hard for me as I matured and got older and kept investigating concepts of sustainability. And I tried to raise my own food and do all that stuff. And every single, at every single avenue, you know, it was blocked by my vegan worldview. And I would run up against these terrible barriers to what I thought was true. And I could see that it wasn't true, but I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I would be left in this terrible confusion. And then I would retreat, would retreat back into my, um, and that's not really a good way to live that kind of fundamentalist mind. Eventually the entire thing collapsed. And at that point you're left in the rubble. Um, you know, when our ideologies fail us and physical reality asserts itself again, you know, you, you can't actually bludgeon reality to be what you want it to be. And hmm. I, I couldn't deny anymore that my health had completely failed. So then you spend a year or two years sort of left in the rubble of, well, who am I? Uh, if I'm not a vegan, what does it mean? You know, what is my place in the cosmos? What is my place on this planet? How do I relate to other animals and to other living beings? And what, what in the world am I supposed to eat now? Hmm. And it was a terrible year and a half. And eventually I was able to, you know, kind of reinvestigate all of that information that I'd shunted aside and build a new knowledge base. And I will say that, you know, my basic value system never changed. And I really hope that people can can hear that, especially if they're in a similar struggle, that I still am motivated by, you know, the ethics of compassion and sustainability and justice. And all of those things are the only way forward to the world that we so desperately need. But with bigger information, you make other decisions. So I had to accumulate adult knowledge, um, and I did it the hard way. So it's hard when you're a fanatic. I have that kind of personality. I know that. And I'm very cautious now about what I take up and how deeply I hold it to be true until I'm sure. And I, I always try to make sure that I am open to other, other viewpoints because I made a terrible mistake with that one. And there's, there's no going back. You know, the damage I've done is, is the damage I've done. So that's how I came to write the book was I, I just felt like there were still, you know, so many idealistic young people who were going to take this up without any other knowledge to counterbalance, you know, the sort of vegan worldview. And it was bigger knowledge that I had now. It was much bigger about what's gone wrong on this planet. Um, and I, I wanted to explain that to them before they took up that vegan worldview so tightly that they couldn't get their way out of it. Because I know how badly it ends if you hang on to that for too long. 
So I wanted to reach those young people. I wanted to reach back in time and reach myself, which of course can't be done, but certainly there's other young people out there who will hear this. So that, that was one reason that I wrote the book. But I, I would say overall, the biggest reason I wrote the book is because I want the people who care most about the planet to understand the depth of the problem. Because right now, most of them don't. You know, if they're offering you veganism as a solution, they do not understand the depth of the problem. And I wanted those people to take all their passion and all their activism and really understand the depth of the problem that we are facing, because that's what it's going to take to turn the ship around. So that's how I ended up writing the book. Well, well, let's dive a little bit deeper into the problem that we're facing now, because, I mean, your words jump off the pages when you are discussing the imminent problem that we're having with, I guess, can I use the word agriculture? And, and sure. The, the demise of the topsoils, the demise of so many different uh, animal species because of this this uh, human invention <laughs> that, uh, that people right. shout out that is the, the best invention uh, ever. But uh, when you read your book, you're actually sort of like, whoa, what, have, what actually is agriculture? So could we start there, please, Leah? Yes, in very brute terms. You take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off that land. And I mean down to the bacteria, ultimately. And then you plant that land to human use. And that is a long-winded way of saying mass extinction. Because all those plants and animals and you know, little microbes from the majestic all the way to down to the microscopic, they have nowhere else to go that is their home. And you have taken that land and cleared them off it. You have, you've killed them all, essentially. You know, whether you do it piece by piece, or whether you just do it by attrition, by taking more and more land, um, you know, under human control, they have nowhere else to go. It's their home. So it's a war against the living world, because the world does not want to be a monocrop of corn and soy and wheat. It wants to be a forest or a prairie or a wetland. Um, and all of those species will do their best to come back, because that's how they live. And without land to do it on, they're dead. So right now on this planet, 200 species are going extinct every single day which really should send a cold chill of horror up everyone's spine. Mm. Um, we have rent a hole in the fabric of life that is, I mean, it's a black hole essentially at this point, and all of life is sucking down into it. Um, and the, the, the number one, you know, the biggest, the worst thing that humans have done to this planet is agriculture because it's biotic cleansing. That is literally what it is, right? There's no room for anybody but humans. And maybe there's, you know, six or seven other species that can live in those cornfields, but that's about it. You know, there's some rodents, perhaps, um, and maybe some crows, but, you know, that's it. Um, everybody else has nowhere to go. And this has been the problem from the beginning. 10,000 years ago, um, in about 13 places around the world, people started to take up this activity. And that's what they've done. Um, and you can go to the very first places where agriculture started. You will find a desert because that's the end game. That's where it ends every single time. There is nothing sustainable about this. There is nothing just about it. Not for humans, not for animals, not the earth. You can't take away, and at this point, we're talking about 98% uh, of the world's old growth forests and 99% of the world's grasslands are gone. And the people who took them were the agriculturalists. And I'm going to contrast this with hunter-gatherers. And that was how we lived for our first two and a half million years on this planet. We were not monsters and destroyers. We lived inside biotic communities. We took our nourishment from within those communities. We were part of it. We participated in it. 
We did not dominate over it. And that's what agriculture is, it's just pure domination. So that's, you know, problem number one, this can never be sustained. Um, because all we're doing is wiping out all of our kin who make our lives possible. Um, and one of the thing that's, things that's destroyed pretty quickly doing agriculture is, of course, the soil itself. And soil is the basis of life, um, at least land life. You know, we owe our entire existence to six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. That's it. Um, so without that soil, it's, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing left, um, you know, um, land life is over. And that's what agriculture does is year by year, it degrades that soil. Um, nature's pattern is completely different. Agriculture is um, annual monocrops. So annual means it's a, a plant that only lives for a few, you know, one year, a few short seasons. Um, and a monocrop means it's the same plant, you know, for miles and miles and miles. And that's completely the opposite of what nature does, which is mostly perennial plants. So it's plants that live a long time, whether they're grasses or trees. Think about how old trees are, mm -hmm. right? Nobody could do that in, you know, three or four seasons. It's, these are, these are creatures that can live, you know, 2000 years. I mean, where I, I'm in the rainforest of Northern California in the redwoods, and there are trees here that are older than Christianity, which is pretty amazing, but that's how old trees can be. Some of them are even older. Um, and it's because so it's completely different. These are plants that live a very long time. They make these incredibly dense communities of other life forms, um, all working symbiotically. And it's it's the complete opposite of a monoculture because there's many, many, many of them. In fact, in a, in a good, healthy prairie, one meter of land should have at least 25 different species. So if you can picture a meter, hmm. um, there should be at least 25 different species of plants right there in that one meter. That's how dense this planet should be with life. And agriculture destroys it all. Um, and so it destroys the soil in the process of that, because every year you have to clear the soil uh, to plant those annual seeds, you know, to make that monocrop. And that means you have to clear it. And so that's what all the plows are for. And that's what all the burning is for. And that's why you see miles and miles of corn and wheat, you know, across the Midwest and across Canada and in the quote breadbasket regions of the world. That's what you're going to find. And it means there's nothing else living there. So we're only supporting humans on it. Um, and ultimately, the, the topsoil will wear away. And we've skinned the planet alive, ultimately. And most of the, the grain growing regions of the world were pretty well played out by 1950. And at that point, what should have happened was the inevitable, if horrifying, collapse of civilization, which is you know inevitable because it's it's, you're on drawdown, right? You're using up your soil. It eventually collapses. That is the pattern around the world. Um, and this time, instead of that happening, what has happened is that human beings figured out how to eat oil. So gas and coal, uh, gas and oil were uh, put to use to extract usable nitrogen fertilizer. And instead, we had this thing called the Green Revolution, which quadrupled the amount of food available for people. Uh, which meant that the human population also quadrupled. Um, this is still not going to end well. I mean, oil and and gas are, you know, they're not renewable resources. We've only got so much. So this is still not a plan with the future. We've just sort of put off the inevitable, only this time it's going to be four times worse. Um, and so to, I just want to speak for a minute about this kind of inevitable conclusion to civilizations. There have been, I think, 34 civilizations total on this planet um, and civilization just means people living in cities, mm -hmm. that word civilization, that's just what it means. Okay. Civil, that's what that, that's civitas is the city. Um, but what that actually means is they need more than the land can get. Okay. They're living in concentrations higher than the land can possibly provide for. And if you think about a city, well, what is it? It's people, you know, thrown together in really high densities and it's mostly concrete and there is no way to get food or water 
or you know energy any kind of resources have to be imported from somewhere else because the people living there have completely overshot their land base so that's what civilization is people living in those densities um, that they have destroyed their own land base and now they have to go out and get what they need from somewhere else and this is how agriculture has destroyed human culture as well as the planet because these this way of life inevitably leads to uh, militarism imperialism genocide slavery um, up till that point in human history i'm not going to say everything that people did was perfect but we did not have stratified hierarchical militarized civilizations okay that comes with when, when you live in that concentration where you have to go out and get your food and your energy and your water from somewhere else you have to conquer your neighbors and take theirs and that's the pattern you've got this bloated power center at the middle and it's surrounded by conquered colonies um, eventually the city uses up all of that stuff too and then the whole thing collapses it pops up somewhere else nearby and then you've got another civilization because the region and then it collapses and so you can follow you know the sort of hopscotch of the power center all around for instance the mediterranean region um, you know you've got the egyptians and the phoenicians and then the greeks and then the romans and you know eventually the whole thing collapses um and that's why is because it's drawdown because they're using more than the land can possibly provide uh, and then eventually you take over your neighbors um and that of course requires a military because nobody's willingly going to give up their land, their water, their trees, their fish. So, you know, the, the power center has to send soldiers out to take those things. Um, agriculture makes that possible. It also makes it inevitable. And the reason it makes it possible is because what you have temporarily with agriculture is a surplus. Mm. Hunter-gatherers do not have a surplus. Their surplus lies in just their trust of their land base. So they can move on, you know, when that when if there's no fish this time of year or the game is thin here because it's winter, they move, they move, you know, they'll, they'll, they have a territory and they'll they'll rotate through it and they know where to go during what time of the year to get the best kind of food. Not true for agricultural peoples, for farmers, they're settled. That's the thing. It's settled people. So they have this surplus for a while. It's all based on drawdown. It's all based on overshoot. But for the first 800, 1,000, maybe 2,000, and what that surplus means is that there are people who don't have to be involved with food, and they can do things instead, like develop an entire military class, to develop an entire priest class, develop a royal class. So you end up with these hierarchical stratified societies, all based on that surplus, because now you've got full-time people who can do nothing but make war. And those people are sent out to conquer conquer the region and bring back the spoils and keep everybody fed in the cities. Um, and I'm not saying anything that's strange here. This is actually history. This is 10,000 years what has happened on this planet. It's just that, you know, environmentalists don't put it together with, you know, the environmental situation um, and, and look, actually look at this pattern called civilization because it's been an absolute nightmare. It's just there's nothing good that can be said about it. Mass extinction, it's piss-poor nutrition, it's backbreaking labor. 90% of the population tends to be slaves, culture on a large scale. Um, and until the year 1800, um, about three quarters of the human being alive on this planet were living in some form of slavery, indenture, or serfdom. Three quarters of the people on the planet. That's what agriculture, what civilization requires. Now we've forgotten this because we've figured out how to make the internal combustion engine. So for the last hundred years or so, uh, we've had machines to do that work. Um, I do guarantee that when the oil and the gas run out, we're going to remember just how much work is involved in this thing called agriculture. But until then, everybody seems to just have put on their historic blinders and they've forgotten what's involved.
So, you know, disaster on every level. It's disaster for the planet, disaster for the animals, disaster for the bad mm. communities, disaster for human civilization, um, for human rights around the globe. And, and now here we are. Um, planet's been skinned alive, 200 species a day, and we're stuck because there's 7 billion people and nobody can seem to think of a way to feed us that does not involve simply taking over more and more land and demanding more and more from that land and applying more and more uh, fossil fuel-based fertilizers. That's what we're eating now is oil, which is not a plan with the future. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, very truthful, but also very, very terrifying for a lot of a lot of people to actually, I guess, to confront. So let's talk about agriculture again and talk about the monocrops. And what are the ones that obviously we should be avoiding? Well, I would say avoid all of them. Hmm. Um, I think that the human race has to simply abandon this practice, this, um, this terrible activity that, you know, led us down this path because it can, it, it can only end one way. And that's the way that it has ended 34 times. And we're now at 35. It's completely global. Um, it's not going to end any differently. It's based on drawdown. There is no other way for it to end but in complete collapse. So first of all, I want everybody to understand the nature of the problem. So I've tried to lay that out as best I can. There are solutions going forward. Um, this problem is not actually you know, a problem of physics or chemistry or violating you know, the natural laws of the universe. It's a human created problem. It's a political problem. It's an activity that we took up. It's an activity that we can abandon. Mm. And the number one thing we need to do is repair what we've destroyed. So let the wetlands come back. Let the forest come back. Do what we can to repair those grasslands. Um, you know, there's many, many ways we can help make that happen as humans. It's also true that if we just get out of the way, nature knows how to do it. Mm -hmm. Every last seed in the soil knows where it belongs and knows when it's time to sprout. And forests know what they are doing, you know, in a way that we could never begin to comprehend what goes on in a forest or a grassland or a wetland. I mean, nobody's brain is that amazing. Um, these are really complicated, complex communities that have just billion different relationships between all those living creatures, the insects, you know, the, the, the fish, the birds, the large mammals, all the different kinds of plants, and, and of course, the mycorrhiza, the mushrooms, the, you know, everything that's going on under the soil. I mean, that's really, those are really the people who have this down, hmm. and they know how to make those communities happen. We could go back to being participants inside those living communities. If we simply stop doing the destruction, they will come back. They'll come home because they want their homes back. Right. So the real problem is, of course, what do you do with the fact that there's seven billion people and that, you know, right now, almost 80 percent of the planet is dedicated to simply supporting humans. Um, obviously, that's not sustainable. But what do we do? I mean, this is what I ran smack up against when I was 20 years old, still an impassioned vegan. And I had a professor in college say this sentence. I'll never forget it. He said, the moment you put a plow to soil, you degrade that soil. And I was, I, it's about the whole world just collapsed around me because I was like, no, wait a minute. I thought veganism was the way. And if he was right, um, I could see it. It was like dominoes falling. Like, wow, we're degrading the soil, which means every day we need to take more. But of course, the planet is finite. Eventually, we're going to hit the very last thing that can be taken. At that point, what happens but mass starvation? You know, so here we are. I mean, we are at that brink. Um, all right, so we let the planet repair, right? We let all those creatures come home. We let the plants take back what they want. We let the wetlands be what they are. We let the rivers flow to the ocean again. Please let life come back. I don't think it's too late. What do we do about all the people? Well, this is where we're all going to have to be feminists. Um, 
you know, the number one reason that we have this problem of too many people is really because of uh, patriarchal social relations. Um, as it turns out, about half the children who are born every year are either unplanned or unwanted. So the number one thing we can actually do is give women and girls um, the opportunity to make choices about their own futures. And this problem has actually been studied backwards, forwards, and inside out. The number one thing you can do to lower the birth rate in any country, the number one thing is so simple. Teach a girl to read. It's that simple. When girls have that much more power over their lives, they choose to have fewer children, and they put off having children until they're much older. They're not having children at 15 or 16 when so many of them are likely to die anyway. They're able to wait until they're 28 or 30 to have that first baby. It makes a huge difference because you can see the generation is cut right and it's doubled. The amount of space between generations, which will cut the population in half so quickly. Um, and so that's what it is. And there are countries that have taken this up and managed it really quickly. Um, one example for your listeners to look at if they're very curious about this is actually Iran, you know, which is a religious theocracy. But they were not in denial about the future of their country. They were reproducing at essentially the biological upper limit of what humans were capable of doing. And they quickly realized, just doing the math, you know, we're not going to have room to stand, let alone water to drink, you know, pretty quickly on if, if this keeps going. So what do we do about it? And they got all the kind of stakeholders together had a big sort of meeting conference about it and realized, well, we do have a lot of knowledge about this. So what is it going to take? So they had, um, they offered free birth control just across the board to all married couples. In fact, to get a marriage license, you had to go through a class about birth control, both the men and the women. Um, and they set up uh, culturally appropriate birth control, um, like health clinics, um, all in the big cities. And then they had mobile units in the countryside. Um, and they, so they made it really accessible. And then they also trained women in local neighborhoods just to go door to door and talk to all the women, like do you need birth control? Do you understand birth control? What would you like? Here are some options just so that everybody had the information and they made it free so everybody could get it. And then they also got two important institutions on board. And one was the media, the mass media. So the different like soap operas and sort of pop culture stuff that was going on. They had the writers um, include storylines about getting birth control and getting married and limiting your family size and why that was good and all kinds of conversations about it that sort of broke open the cultural silence. And then the final thing was to get the, some of the religious leaders to say, it's not anywhere in our holy books. Nobody cares. It's like your decision. Allah doesn't care if you get a vasectomy. Please do what you want to do. It's, you know, it's no big deal. Just do what you have to do for yourselves and your family. And at that point, actually, a lot of men jumped on and they were literally lined up around the block to get uh, vasectomies because they didn't want to have 12 children. Who can support that? I mean, mm. it's just it's not a feasible way to live. You know, like it's just they wanted to have lives with futures and give their children lives with futures. And as it turns out, all things being equal, when humans have real capacity to make decisions, so they're not in poverty, um, they've got enough health care. They've got enough education, so they have all the things that we all should have because we're human beings, right? When actually wants to reproduce at replacement levels, which is to say the average woman has just over two children. So all we have to do is be egalitarian as a species, and this problem will correct itself in a few generations. So I know that was kind of long-winded, hmm. but I want everybody to feel some hope about this. We care about this anyway because we care about human rights. But as it turns out, it's like the only way forward is actually to care about girls and the poorest girls around the world, the most oppressed girls around the world. They have to count, or we're not going to make it forward. So this isn't people versus the planet. It's always set up that way, and it's not true. It's actually people plus the planet is the only way forward. 
Like we've got to have justice for the planet and justice for humans. And those things together are the only way that we're actually going to, you know, save, save what's left and actually have a future as a species and as a planet. My family and I have been using beautiful, high quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. I love what you're saying there, Leah, and to see that happening in, in a place like Iran obviously gives hope for, uh, for the planet. Uh, there is such misinformation out there, especially based around the foods that we eat, and obviously there's a big vegan and vegetarian movement at the moment that's coming through in the media landscape, more so than I've ever seen it before, and, and I, I, I feel like I share a similar story with, with yourself, Leah, that 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was a vegan for four years until my health suffered, and then I adopted a, a standard Australian diet, and my health suffered again, and it's not <laughs> until now that I, that I guess I've sort of figured it out through yourself and people like Nora Gagaudis and, and other uh, experts in this field mm-hmm. that I feel like I've pretty much worked out a really nice simple formula which is basically some beautiful vegetables and and a side of meat or seafood that's well sourced and nose to tail and and comes from uh, as you said farmers uh, or fisher people that are doing the right thing by the land and I I guess Joel Salatin has been a huge influence as has Alan Savory and so many people in this in this field that mm-hmm. uh, are speaking the truth and actually want a better planet. We've also just planted 500 or 600 native trees back onto our property to, to bring the bird life back, to bring all, all of that uh, rich nature back as well. And, and, and I've also started uh, recently having a vegetable patch and I think it, it's, it's fantastic. But going back to my, my initial statement there was so many people believe that say eating a cow for instance is damaging to the planet whereas in our documentary the magic pill you summed it up beautifully and i'd love for you to be able to take people through why eating uh, naturally raised cows in a holistic or or other livestock for instance isn't detrimental to the planet if it's done properly right so i think that everything that vegetarians say about factory farming is true um, and they always base their arguments on on that. And that's fine and fair. We should all agree that factory farming is just a horror on every level. It is really wasteful. It is really cruel. It is really horrible. You know, it's completely unsustainable, all of that. So let's agree, and then we can set that aside. Sure. Okay. So let's take an acre of land, and let's talk about what can happen on an acre of land. So there's two things that can happen. One is that we clear all the life off that, that piece of land, and we plant it to corn, and then... You know, everything that lived there has nowhere to go. So all the animals are gone. Um, year by year, the topsoil will degrade until it's essentially dust. Um, as that's happening, the water table keeps dropping because there's no deep-rooted perennial the soil is through the perennials. Animals can't do that. So the water table is disappearing. Um, local streams, rivers nearby, and, and trickles off and clogs the rivers, and now all the fish are dead. Eventually, the river's going to dry up, and you sort of have death and destruction. For some period of time, whether it's 200 years or maybe 800 years, maybe 1,000 years, you're going to get some corn off of that land. And you can do one of two things with that corn. You can feed it to people and 
you know, what happens when people take up agriculture is they shrink six inches and their teeth fall out. You know, we have this whole cohort of diseases that are called the diseases of civilization. And they don't happen to hunter-gatherers, they happen to people who take up agricultural foods. These are not appropriate foods for human. But you, you could do that with that acre of corn, you could feed humans, or you could take all that corn and ship it off down the road to a really horrible metal building with a cement floor on which a bunch of miserable cows are standing around for their whole lives and feed them the corn. Um, and they will be sick and miserable. Um, and eventually when they're slaughtered, that food will then feed humans not in a good way because everything's wrong about it. The fatty acid profile is wrong. The amino acid profile is wrong. The cows are sick when they're killed because the corn is completely the wrong food for them. It turns their stomachs acid and puts holes in their stomachs and then their livers are toxified. These are very sick animals because it's the wrong food. They're not made to eat corn. So that's what you can do on that land. And at the end of the day, what do you have? You have a desert, you have sick humans, you have sick ruminants who didn't have you know any kind of a good life. Um, this just seems like a misery. So that's one model of what can happen on that land. Now, let's talk about what else we could do on that one acre of land. We could leave it alone. We could let it be the prairie that it wants to be. And there will be hundreds of species of plants and there will be hundreds of species of animals. Some of them so small we can't even see them, but they're all there. And then there's those, you know, majestic charismatic animals that people tend to really love. So there'll be a bison on it, you know, depending on where you are in the world. There'll be some kind of a ruminant. Somebody can eat those grasses has the bacteria in a multiple chambered stomach and can digest the cellulose and keep the cycle of life moving because that's what those animals do. It's very important. Without those animals, life will grind to a halt. You've got to have them on those grasses. Um, so it's a symbiotic relationship, okay? And because there's perennial plants with deep roots, every time it rains, the water is absorbed into the soil, goes down to recharge the water table. And then during the dry summer times, the water will be uh, brought back up again, through those deep-rooted perennial plants. And some of that moisture is made available year-round to the rest of the living community. We have no other way to get it but through those plants. So the plants do that incredible thing as well. Um, and now you have this biotic community that's resilient and it's lush and it's beautiful and everybody has a home and everybody gets to live there. And that also means that everybody has to die. The sad part of this is that eventually everybody dies and our bodies are eaten and we are taken up again into that cycle. Every last molecule is broken down and then taken back up. And, you know, there's a moment of sadness in that, but there's also that greater awe and beauty of just being here, being alive, participating in that is there's a sacred moment and we need to understand it as sacred and participate as best we can. Um, everything will die. That includes us. That includes the ruminants we eat. It includes the grasses that will eat us. You know, in the end, the soil eats us all. So that, that one acre could go on forever. It's a, it's a closed loop, sustainable biotic community with everybody participating in the way that they evolved to participate. And it just seems to me, if we could go back to that, it is how we lived for two and a half million years when the planet was um, just so lush with life. It's, it's unimaginable how many living creatures there were, how much has been destroyed. You could, on the American and the Great Plains of America, you could sit on a rock for four days and watch as a single herd of bison thundered by. Four days was how long that took mm. for one herd. I mean, just uncountable numbers of these magnificent animals. And, and there were maybe 60 million, we don't really know, but 60 million is one estimate. They've all, all been traded in for 40 million really sick cows. It's a completely insane system. Hmm. Food for thought. 
Food for thought. I, I wanted to ask you a, a, an interesting one because I've seen it happening a lot lately, and it, it, you probably have a have a good take on it. But um, pet food, for instance, I've, I'm seeing more and more people starting to feed their animals vegetarian diets, whether it be their dogs or cats. And and can we just can you just give us your opinion on that? Well, cats will die. I mean, you can't do this to your cats. They will go blind and they will die. Um, it's ridiculous. There's nine or ten reasons why cats cannot be vegetarians. All of them are quite solid. We've known about this for 60 or 70 years. There's no question in the science about it. Do not do this to your cat. Um, also, don't do it to your dog. Your dog is really a carnivore as well. It might limp along for the only animals that get our diseases are the animals that eat our foods. So if you want your dog to get diabetes or cancer or any of the horrible things we get, uh, go ahead and feed them agricultural foods. Ask yourself, though, where in nature your dog would ever have come across rice or corn or wheat. Do you see dogs out there with plows making agriculture happen? These are not appropriate foods for dogs. I mean, dogs hunt. They kill things eat them. That's what they do. And that is what, you know, they're descendants of wolves and whatever. And that's what they, that's what they eat. Look at their teeth. Look at their stomachs. Very, very acid stomachs for splitting protein. Um, they're perfectly designed for eating meat. Let them eat what they need to eat. And if you're someone who just cannot stomach the idea of buying meat, even for your dog, then you really shouldn't have a dog because it's really abusive, you know, to make your animal conform to your ideology when it has its own needs and those needs need to be respected and if you're the person responsible you need to take care of your dog's needs i i think it's really horrible i mean it's not something i ever would have done as a vegan i at least drew the but um, i think it's kind of appalling that people do this to dogs and cats i love in the movie the magic pill where you talk about uh, when you got your chickens and ducks and the joy that they experienced <laughs> do you want to do you want to tell us that story please so yeah i got i this was i was still trying to be a vegan a vegetarian i didn't know what i and i kept trying to raise my own food and it was impossible because the soil was eating it like what the soil wants to eat is dead plants and dead animals, and I wasn't giving it any. So, you know, the best source of minerals and nitrogen that is organic is their animal products. And I, it was horrifying to me as a vegan to go to the feed store and look at the organic amendments and to realize it was mostly blood meal and bone meal. I, it was just a horrifying moment. I didn't, didn't know what to do about it. Um, so eventually my compromise was I found sort of friends of friends who had goats. So, okay, it's evil domestication slavery. As a vegan, there's no way you can accept this, but I had to get something for my garden. So I ended up, just looked happy out on that hillside. So whatever, I got the manure. Well, the garden just sprang to life, of course, having added manure. Um, and I still was stuck with this. What about the minerals? What about the minerals? But I said, well, I'll handle that when I come to it. Well, in the meantime, of course, all these other animals um, wanted to eat my garden, which of course they do. It's where they live too. So I had a real problem with slugs. Um, and every single night, I they would eat everything that I put out. And then every single day I would replant. I would go get more starts and I would put them in the ground and then the slugs would eat again. And after five or six rounds, it just seemed, it was pointless. I mean, they're just going to keep eating. And I didn't know what to do because they're animals, they're sentient. Like, was I going to kill them? I mean, how do you get rid of them? And really the best thing I could think of was, well, you can put beer in little cups and leave that around and they drink it. Apparently they love it and they get drunk and then they drown. So at least they die happy. So I tried that, but I couldn't do it. In the middle of the night, I woke up just in a cold sweat, and I ran outside, and I emptied all the beer. So then I started doing this crazy thing where I was plucking slugs by hand no. and then trying to take them somewhere else. But there is nowhere else. That's the thing. <laughs> like, where do you put them? And so I would go down the street where there was a more forested area, and I would leave them 
it didn't take too long for me to realize like this is stupid there's already slugs here it's not like there's a lack of slugs for some reason and they're itch they will have they're already slugs reproducing at, at their capacity um all i'm doing is starving some slugs because now they're gonna have to battle it out there's not gonna be enough food so either these slugs or other slugs are gonna starve because of what i've done so i've only shifted the burden one degree to the left i haven't actually solved this problem there was no solving it. That was the problem. As a vegan, I couldn't solve it. And ultimately, the solution was really simple. You get ducks and chickens because, first of all, they'll make the soil really beautiful with their manure. And number two, they'll eat the slugs, which they did. So I got chickens and ducks and, you know, the first six weeks or whatever, they lived inside under a heat lamp. And then there's that beautiful day when you take them outside finally. And they were just, oh, God, they were so happy. I mean, they were just radiating pure animal contentment, running around in the grass, eating things. Um, you know, and they, and they eat grass too. They eat some, some plants, but man, the bugs are what they live for. And the duck, I had a duck and especially the duck, it was just the cutest thing. So I remember digging a hole. We were, I can't remember what we were planning, but something. And, um, she, it was just, she instinctively knew, just had an absolute, you know, straight arrow in. She knew what was going on in that hole and that it was about a bug. And she took one look at those worms and was just, this is what I was born for. I mean, it was the cutest thing, just full body right into that hole, quacking her little guts out, <laughs> eating every last squirmy thing that she could find. I mean, it was just the most adorable. And of course, little ducks are so cute anyway, but just just the joy that radiated out of her. You've never seen a happier creature. And I was like, well, I guess this is how you solve the problem. You just get the animals that can fill in the niche that will then eat the bugs that are giving you trouble. Um, and that's what I did. And I felt weird because I was still trying to be a vegan, but you know, it solved the problem and that was it. So I had ducks and chickens and it was really fun. I also had geese and I had guinea fowl and I had pigeons. I mean, I've had all kinds of fowl at this point and they're all just totally wonderful. I mean, they all have their own personalities um, and their own habits and so cute. I mean, and just to watch their social lives, it's very complicated what's going on amongst them all. I can't pretend I understood it, um, but just, yeah, they're just, they will be a joy. If you, if anyone out there is able to do this, if you haven't done it, it's so much fun. But yes, she was very happy doing <laughs> doing the thing that she's biologically born to do, which is eat bugs. So I handed her the bugs in a hole and she did it. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. We have chickens ourselves and we love them. And uh, oh, they've got the, the best area for them to for them to be themselves and uh, they provide us with so much so much joy and entertainment and uh, as well as nourishment yeah. and I guess you just hit the nail on the head it's what they're biologically meant to do and I'd love for, to get your advice for any parents out there or any young listeners out there because I'm, I'm seeing a, a big trend with young females and and also males adopting a, a vegan approach in their teenage years and I'd love to get your what you would say to yourself or to these children that are out there or the parents of these children. What's your advice? Well, my advice is that we have paleolithic bodies and we need paleolithic food. Um, and that means nutrient dense animal fats, especially animal fats and proteins, but the animal fats are really key. And that's what we evolved eating, you know, just like that duck knew how to eat the bugs. Um, that's what meets the nutritional needs of the human template. Um, you can go back in history to the very beginning of the, you know our, our time on this planet, the genus Homo, and you know what made us human was eating nutrient dense animal fats. That's what made our brains grow. That's what gave us the capacity to make tools so that we could get even more nutrient dense food, which made our brains get even bigger. 
And there's not really any argument about this amongst the archaeologists and the medical anthropologists. The only people who have a different creation story are the vegans who really think that somehow we are meant to eat leaves and bark and seeds. And we're not. We don't have that kind of digestion. Um, so that's one thing, you know, I would try to say to somebody. Uh, another is that while the children with some of the worst health outcomes right now in first world countries are the children of vegans. They get the diseases that you only see in third world countries, and that's really the only people who get them. So I'm talking about things like rickets. Um, there was one study of vegan children done in Boston, Massachusetts, which is a city on the, uh, the east coast of the United States, way up north. I used to live in Boston, I know. It's very cold in the winter, very dark. Um, and uh, in the summertime, 25% of those children had signs of rickets. And in the winter, almost 50%, it was 48% of those kids showed signs of rickets. So this is almost Dickensian. I mean, there's just no reason for a child in a first world country to have rickets. And it's because they're not getting any vitamin D in their diets. It's only available to animal foods. So these are the kinds of nutrition deficiency diseases um, that sh children in wealthy countries just shouldn't have. And they do because their parents, with all the best intentions, their parents are starving them. Um, and you can look through the literature and see the number of babies that have died from being on vegan diets, the number of babies and children who have ended up blind, retarded, uh, with hearing loss because of the lack of B12 in the diet. Um, they can get things like pellagra, which is, I think, niacin. It's another B vitamin. Um, and again, these diseases are only seen in very poor children or in the children of vegan parents. And it's, it's simply not an appropriate diet. And I would really, really encourage people to do a little more research. You have to step out of the vegan bubble, though, because your friends are only going to circle the wagons and tell you what you want to hear. I know because I did that for 20 years. You've got to be willing to step outside and do a little more research because it's all there. This is all in the medical journals. There's case after case of children with permanent damage from vegan diets. It's not an appropriate diet for babies or for humans generally. And that's a very scary thing when you've taken this up. Uh, it becomes part of your identity when you're vegan. It's not just what you eat. It becomes who you are. And that means that this sort of alternate information, this counter information is really hard to engage with because it feels like a threat. And information is not a threat. It's the only way you accumulate into knowledge is to get more and more information. And if, you're, if we're talking about children and your children, you owe it to your children to step outside and engage a little more because it's permanent. You only get one chance to build a body and a brain. And if you're not giving them the right nutrients, it's not gonna happen. And I know this is hard. I, it's terrifying to me what I might've done to a baby if I'd had one, because I was that kind of a fundamentalist. Um, so I would really just encourage people, um, don't let yourself have that rigid mindset, especially when it comes to your children. Please investigate this further because all the information is there. Leah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'd love for you to leave the listeners with one of your ingredients for life that, that helps enrich your, your human experience. So I guess that's the only label we could actually put on ourselves these days is that we're human. Uh, we're, and I wonder how long that's going to be for as well. But uh, <laughs> would you like to share what makes Leah tick? This is going to sound so corny, but it's love. I mean, that's it. You have to love your... You have to love your people and you have to love your place and you have to love all the creatures around you who you don't even know their names. You can't even see them without a microscope, but they make your life possible. I mean, we are so dependent on every last one of those tiny little creatures. We can't make oxygen. We can't recycle nutrients. You know, we need all of them to do it for us. And we have to love our home. We have to love this one only planet. 
that lets us take form and have a body and experience this incredible thing that's just being alive. Um, and so we have to have that that awesome kind of love, that love that's just filled with wonder and thing. Um, but other kinds of love too. I mean, there's just the, the, the love that's just joy. Um, and I mean, I have that with my dogs all the time because they're just incredible. But just even looking outside my window, I see all these different trees. There's elder trees, there's willow trees, there's redwood trees. And they are so happy in the sunshine right now. You can just feel it. They're just so happy to be alive and to know they're going to be alive for hundreds or thousands of years. I'm going to do my best to protect them, you know, and we're all in this together. And it's just being part of that, but that biotic community is really just about love because we're all taking turns feeding each other and celebrating each other and then feeding each other some more. And when you can remember that on a daily level, I don't know, it just really helps kind of cut back the despair and the stress and the anxiety and, you know, there's sadness in every life. There's trauma. There's no way around that. We're all going to have the hard times. But that just that base of of love and joy and thanksgiving, I think, is our birthright as humans. So try to touch that every day. Leah, thank you so much for your time today. And we love you. I love you. And your work <laughs> is is very profound. It is very challenging for a lot of people, but so rewarding when people can move through those barriers. So please keep doing what you're doing and we look forward to your ongoing work and uh, your ongoing love. So thank you for being on our podcast today. Well, thank you very much. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.